Chapter 5 The Pandora Part 1 Of the eventful history of the mutiny and piratical seizure of HMS Bounty, its cause and consequences. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Haley Flagg. The Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of HMS Bounty by Sir John Barrow. Chapter 5, Part 1. Oh, I have suffered with those that I saw suffer. A brave vessel who had no doubt some noble creatures in her dashed all to pieces. Oh, the cry did knock against my very heart. Poor souls, they perished. Had I been any god of power, I would have sunk the sea within the earth, or ere it should the good ship so have swallowed, and the freighting souls within her. The tide of public applause set as strongly in favor of Bly, on account of his sufferings and the successful issue of his daring enterprise, as its indignation was launched against Christian and his associates for the audacious and criminal deed they had committed. Bly was promoted by the Admiralty to the rank of commander, and speedily sent out a second time to transport the breadfruit to the West Indies, which he, without the least obstruction, successfully accomplished. And His Majesty's government were no sooner made acquainted with the atrocious act of piracy and mutiny, than it determined to adopt every possible means to apprehend and bring to condign punishment the perpetrators of so foul a deed. For this purpose, the Pandora frigate of twenty-four guns and one hundred and sixty men was dispatched under the command of Captain Edward Edwards, with orders to proceed in the first instance to Otaheite, and not finding the mutineers there, to visit the different groups of the Society and Friendly Islands, and others in the neighboring parts of the Pacific, using his best endeavors to seize and bring home in confinement the whole or such part of the delinquents as he might be able to discover. This voyage was in the sequel almost as disastrous as that of the bounty, but from a different cause. The waste of human life was much greater, occasioned by the wreck of the ship, and the distress experienced by the crew not much less, owing to the famine and thirst they had to suffer in a navigation of eleven hundred miles in open boats. But the captain succeeded in fulfilling a part of his instructions by taking fourteen of the mutineers, of whom ten were brought safe to England, the other four being drowned when the ship was wrecked. The only published account of this voyage is contained in a small volume by Mr. George Hamilton, the surgeon, who appears to have been a coarse, vulgar, and illiterate man, more disposed to relate licentious scenes and adventures in which he and his companions were engaged than to give any information of proceedings and occurrences connected with the main object of the voyage. From this book, therefore, much information is not to be looked for. In a more modern publication, many abusive epithets have been bestowed on Captain Edwards, and observations made on the conduct of this officer highly injurious to his reputation, in regards to his inhuman treatment of and disgraceful acts of cruelty towards his prisoners, which, it is to be feared, have but too much foundation in fact. The account of his proceedings, rendered by himself to the Admiralty, is vague and unsatisfactory, and had it not been for the journal of Morrison and a circumstantial letter of young Haywood to his mother, no record would have remained of the unfeeling conduct of this officer towards his unfortunate prisoners, who were treated with a rigor which could not be justified on any ground of necessity or prudence. The Pandora anchored on Matayai Bay on the 23rd March, 1791. 
Captain Edwards, in his narrative, states that Joseph Coleman, the armorer of the bounty, attempted to come on board before the Pandora had anchored, that on reaching the ship he began to make inquiries of him after the bounty and her people, and that he seemed to be ready to give him any information that was required, that the next who came on board just after the ship had anchored were Mr. Peter Haywood and Mr. Stewart before any boat had been sent on shore that they were brought down to his cabin, when, after some conversation, Haywood asked if Mr. Hayward, midshipman of the bounty, but now lieutenant of the Pandora, was on board, as he had heard that he was. That lieutenant Hayward, whom he sent for, treated Haywood with a sort of contemptuous look, and began to enter into conversation with him respecting the bounty. But Edwards ordered him to desist, and called in the sentinel to take the prisoners into safe custody, and put them in irons. That four other mutineers soon made their appearance, and that, from them and some of the natives, he learned that the rest of the bounty's people had built a schooner, with which they had sailed the day before, from Matayai Bay to the northwest part of the island. He goes on to say that, on this intelligence, he dispatched the two lieutenants, Corner and Hayward, with the pinnace and launch, to endeavor to intercept her. They soon got sight of her and chased her out to sea, but the schooner gained so much upon them, and night coming on, they were compelled to give up the pursuit and return to the ship. It was soon made known, however, that she had returned to Papare, on which they were again dispatched in search of her. Lieutenant Corner had taken three of the mutineers, and Hayward, on arriving at Papare, found the schooner there, but the mutineers had abandoned her and fled to the mountains. He carried off the schooner and returned next day when he learned they were not far off, and the following morning, on hearing they were coming down, he drew up his party in order to receive them and when within hearing called to them to lay down their arms and to go on one side, which they did, when they were confined and brought as prisoners to the ship. The following were the persons received on board the Pandora. Peter Haywood, midshipman. George Stewart, midshipman. James Morrison, boatswain's mate. Charles Norman, carpenter's mate. Thomas McIntosh, carpenter's crew. Joseph Coleman, armorer. Richard Skinner, Thomas Ellison, Henry Hillbrandt, Thomas Burkett, John Millward, John Sumner, William Musprat, Michael Byrne, all seamen. In all, fourteen. The other two, which made up the sixteen that had been left on the island, were murdered, as will appear presently. Captain Edwards will himself explain how he disposed of his prisoners. I put the pirates, he says, into a roundhouse which I built on the after part of the quarter deck for their more effectual security in this airy and healthy situation, and to separate them from, and to prevent their having communication with, or to crowd and incommode, the ship's company. Dr. Hamilton calls it the most desirable place in the ship, and adds that orders were given that the prisoners should be victualled in every respect, the same as the ship's company, both in meat, liquor, and all the extra indulgences with which they were so liberally supplied, notwithstanding the established laws of the service, which restrict prisoners to two-thirds allowance. But Captain Edwards very humanely commiserated their unhappy and inevitable length of confinement. Mr. Morrison, one of the prisoners, gives a very different account of their treatment from that of Edwards or Hamilton. He says that Captain Edwards put both legs of the two midshipmen in irons, and that he branded them with the appropriate epithet of piratical villains, that they, with the rest, being strongly handcuffed, were put into a kind of roundhouse, only eleven feet long, built as a prison, and aptly named Pandora's Box, which was entered by a scuttle in the roof, about eighteen inches square. 
This was done in order that they might be kept separate from the crew, and also the more effectually to prevent them from having any communication with the natives. That such of those friendly creatures as ventured to look pitifully towards them were instantly turned out of the ship, and never again allowed to come on board. But two sentinels were kept constantly upon the roof of the prison with orders to shoot the first of its inmates who should attempt to address another in the Otaheitean dialect. That Captain Edwards took every precaution to keep his prisoners in safe custody, and placed them in confinement, as by his instructions he was directed to do, may be well imagined. End note 14. But Mr. Morrison will probably be thought to go somewhat beyond credibility in stating that orders were given to shoot any of the prisoners when confined in irons. Captain Edwards must have known that such an act would have cost him his commission or something more. The fact is that information was given to Edwards, at least he so asserts, that the brother of the king of Otaheite, an intelligent chief, that a conspiracy was formed among the natives to cut the ship's cables the first strong wind that should blow on the shore, which was considered to be the more probable, as many of the prisoners were said to be married to the most respectable chief's daughters in the district opposite to the anchorage, that the midshipman Stuart, in particular, had married the daughter of a man of great landed property near Matai Bay. This intelligence, no doubt, weighed with the captain in giving his orders for the close confinement of the prisoners, and particularly in restricting the visits of the natives. But so far is it from being true that all communication between the mutineers and the natives was cut off, that we are distinctly told by Mr. Hamilton that the prisoners' wives visited the ship daily and brought their children who were permitted to be carried to their unhappy fathers. To see the poor captives in irons, he says, weeping over their tender offspring, was too moving a scene for any feeling heart. Their wives brought them ample supplies of every delicacy that the country afforded, while we lay there and behaved with the greatest fidelity and affection to them. End note 15. Of the fidelity and attachment of these simple-minded creatures, an instant is afforded of the affecting story which is told in the first missionary voyage of the Duff, of the unfortunate wife of the reputed mutineer, Mr. Stewart. It would seem also to exonerate Edwards from some part of the charges which have been brought against him. The history of Peggy Stewart marks a tenderness of heart that never will be heard without emotion. She was the daughter of a chief, and taken for his wife by Mr. Stewart, one of the unhappy mutineers. They had lived with the old chief in the most tender state of endearment. A beautiful little girl had been the fruit of their union and was, at the breast when the Pandora arrived, seized the criminals and secured them in irons on board the ship. Frantic with grief, the unhappy Peggy, for so he had named her, flew with her infant in a canoe to the arms of her husband. The interview was so affecting and afflicting that the officers on board were overwhelmed with anguish, and Stuart himself, unable to bear the heart-rending scene, begged she might not be admitted again on board. She was separated from him by violence, and conveyed on shore in a state of despair and grief too big for utterance. Withheld from him, and forbidden to come any more on board, she sunk into the deepest dejection. It preyed on her vitals. She lost all relish for food and life, rejoiced no more, pined under a rapid decay of two months, and fell a victim to her feelings, dying literally of a broken heart. Her child is yet alive, and a tender object of our care, having been brought up by a sister, who nursed it as her own, and has discharged all the duties of an affectionate mother to the orphan infant. End note 16. It does not appear that young Haywood formed any matrimonial engagement during his abode in Otaheite. 
he was not however insensible to the amiable and good qualities of these people in some laudatory verses which he wrote while on the island their numerous good qualities are spoken of in terms of the highest commendation all the mutineers that were left on the island being received on board the pandora that ship proceeded in search of those who had gone away in the bounty it may be mentioned however that two of the most active in the mutiny churchill and thompson had perished on the island before her arrival by violent deaths these two men had accompanied a chief who was the tayo or sworn friend of churchill and having died without children this mutineer succeeded to his property and dignity according to the custom of the country thompson for some real or fancied insult took an opportunity of shooting his companion the natives assembled and came to a resolution to avenge the murder and literally stoned thompson to death and his skull was brought on board the pandora this horrible wretch had some time before slain a man and a child through mere wantonness but escaped punishment by a mistake that had nearly proved fatal to young haywood it seems that the description of a person in otaheite is usually given by some distinguishing figure of the tattoo and haywood having the same mark as thompson was taken for him and just as the club was raised to dash out his brains the interposition of the old chief with whom he was travelling round the island was just in time to avert the blow captain edwards had no clue to guide him as to the route taken by the bounty but he learnt from different people and from journals kept on board that ship which were found in the chests of the mutineers at otaheite the proceedings of christian and his associates after lieutenant bligh and his companions had been turned adrift in the launch from these it appears that the pirates proceeded in the first instance to the island of tubuai in latitudes twenty degrees thirteen minutes south longitude a hundred and forty nine degrees thirty five minutes west where they anchored on the twenty fifth of may seventeen eighty nine they had thrown overboard the greater part of the breadfruit plants and divided among themselves the property of the officers and men who had been so inhumanely turned adrift at this island they intended to form a settlement but the opposition of the natives the want of many necessary materials and quarrels among themselves determined them to go to otaheite to procure what might be required to effect their purpose provided they should agree to prosecute their original intention they accordingly sailed from tubuai about the latter end of the month and arrived at otaheite on the sixth of june the otu or reigning sovereign and other principal natives were very inquisitive and anxious to know what had become of lieutenant bligh and the rest of the crew and also what had been done with the breadfruit plants they were told they had most unexpectedly fallen in with captain cook at an island he had just discovered called waitutaki where he intended to form a settlement and where the plants had been landed and that lieutenant bligh and the others were stopping there to assist captain cook in the business he had in hand and that he had appointed mr christian commander of the bounty and that he was now come by his orders for an additional supply of hogs goats fowls breadfruit and various other articles which otaheite could supply this artful story was quite sufficient to impose on the credulity of the humane and simple-minded islanders and so overcome with joy were they to hear that their old friend captain cook was alive and about to settle so near them that every possible means were forthwith made use of to procure the things that were wanted so that in the course of a few days the bounty received on board three hundred and twelve hogs thirty-eight goats eight dozen of fowls a bull and a cow and a large quantity of breadfruit plantains bananas and other fruits they also took with them eight men nine women and seven boys with these supplies they left otaheite on the nineteenth of june and arrived a second time at tubuai on the twenty-sixth 
They warped the ship up the harbour, landed the livestock, and set about building a fort of fifty yards square. While this work was carrying on, quarrels and disagreements were daily happening among them, and continual disputes and skirmishes were taking place with the natives, generally brought on by the violent conduct of the invaders and by depredations committed on their property. Retaliations were attempted by the natives without success, numbers of whom being pursued with firearms were put to death. Still, the situation of the mutineers became so disagreeable and unsafe, the work went on so slowly and reluctantly, that the building of the fort was agreed to be discontinued. Christian, in fact, had very soon perceived that his authority was on the wane, and that no peaceful establishment was likely to be accomplished at Tubuai. He therefore held a consultation as to what would be the most advisable step to take. After much angry discussion, it was at length determined that Tubuai should be abandoned, that the ship should once more be taken to Otaheite, and that those who might choose to go on shore there might do so, and those who preferred to remain in the ship might proceed in her to whatever place they should agree upon among themselves. In consequence of this determination, they sailed from Tubuai on the 15th, and arrived at Marayai Bay on the 20th of September, 1789. Here, sixteen of the mutineers were put on shore, at their own request, fourteen of whom were received on board the Pandora, and two of them, as before mentioned, were murdered on the island. The remaining nine agreed to continue in the bounty, the small arms, powder, canvas, and the small stores belonging to the ship were equally divided among the whole crew. The bounty sailed finally from Otaheite on the night of the 21st of September, and was last seen the following morning to the northwest of Point Venus. They took with them seven Otaheitan men and twelve women. It was not even conjectured whither they meant to go, but Christian had frequently been heard to say that his object was to discover some unknown or uninhabited island in which there was no harbor for shipping that he would run the bounty on shore, and make use of her materials to form a settlement. But this was the only account, vague as it was, that could be procured to direct Captain Edwards in his intended search. It appears that when the schooner, of which we have spoken, had been finished, six of the fourteen mutineers that were left on Otaheite embarked in her, with the intention of proceeding to the East Indies, and actually put to sea. But meeting with bad weather and suspecting the nautical abilities of Morrison, whom they had elected as commanding officer to conduct her in safety, they resolved on returning to Otaheite. Morrison, it seems, first undertook the construction of this schooner, being himself a tolerable mechanic, in which he was assisted by the two carpenters, the cooper, and some others. To this little band of architects, we are told, Morrison acted both as director and chaplain, distinguishing the Sabbath day by reading to them the church liturgy and hoisting the British colors on a flagstaff erected near the scene of their operations. Conscious of his innocence, his object is stated to have been that of reaching Batavia in time to secure a passage home in the next fleet bound to Holland, but that their return was occasioned not by any distrust of Morrison's talents, but by a refusal on the part of the natives to give them a sufficient quantity of matting and other necessaries for so long a voyage, being, in fact, desirous of retaining them on the island. Stuart and young Haywood took no part in this transaction, having made up their minds to remain at Otaheite and there to await the arrival of a king's ship, it being morally certain that ere long one would be sent out thither to search for them, whatever might have been the fate of Bly and his companions, and that this was really their intention is evident by the alacrity they displayed on getting on board the Pandora the moment of her arrival. On the 8th of May, this frigate left Otaheite, accompanied by the little schooner which the mutineers had built, and the history of which is somewhat remarkable. In point of size, she was not a great deal larger than Lieutenant Bly's launch, 
her dimensions being thirty feet length of keel, thirty-five length on deck, nine feet and a half extreme breadth, five feet depth of the hold. She parted from the Pandora near the Palmerston Islands when searching for the bounty, and was not heard of till the arrival of the Pandora's crew at Samarong in Java, where they found her lying at anchor, the crew having suffered so dreadfully from famine and the want of water that one of the young gentlemen belonging to her became delirious. She was a remarkably swift sailor, and being afterwards employed in the sea otter trade, is stated to have made one of the quickest passages ever known from China to the Sandwich Islands. This memorable little vessel was purchased at Canton by the late Captain Broughton to assist him in his surveying the coast of Tartary, and became the means of preserving the crew of His Majesty's ship Providence, amounting to 112 men, when wrecked to the eastward of Formosa in the year 1797. The Pandora called at numerous islands without success, but on Lieutenant Corner having landed on one of the Palmerston's group, he found a yard and some spars with the broad arrow upon them, and marked Bounty. This induced the captain to cause a very minute search to be made in all these islands, in the course of which the Pandora, being driven out to sea by blowing weather, and very thick and hazy, lost sight of the little tender and a jolly boat, the latter of which was never more heard of. This gives occasion to a little splenetic effusion from a writer in a periodic journal, end note 17, which was hardly called for. When this boat, says the writer, with a midshipman and several men, for, had been inhumanely ordered from alongside, it was known that there was nothing in her but one piece of salt beef compassionately thrown in by a seaman, and horrid as must have been their fate, the flippant surgeon, after detailing the disgraceful fact, adds that this is the way the world was peopled, or words to that effect, for we quote only from memory. The following is quoted from the book. It may be difficult to surmise, says the surgeon, what has been the fate of those unfortunate men. They had a piece of salt beef thrown into the boat on them leaving the ship, and it rained a good deal that night and the following day, which might satiate their thirst. It is by these accidents the divine ruler of the universe has peopled the southern hemisphere. This is no more than asserting an acknowledged fact that can hardly admit of a dispute, and there appears nothing in the paragraph which at all affects the character of Captain Edwards, against whom it is leveled. After a fruitless search of three months, the Pandora arrived on the 29th of August on the coast of New Holland, and close to that extraordinary reef of coral rocks called the Barrier Reef, which runs along the greater part of the eastern coast, but at a considerable distance from it. The boat had been sent out to look for an opening, which was soon discovered, but in the course of the night the ship had drifted past it. On getting soundings, said Captain Edwards in his narrative laid before the court-martial, the topsails were filled, but before the tacks were hauled on board and the other sails made and trimmed, the ship struck upon a reef. We had a quarter less two fathoms on the larboard side and three fathoms on the starboard side. The sails were braced about different ways to endeavour to get her off, but to no purpose. They were then clued up and afterwards furled. The top-gallant yards got down and the top-gallant mast struck. Boats were hoisted out with a view to carry out an anchor but before that could be effected the ship struck so violently on the reef that the carpenter reported she made eighteen inches of water in five minutes, and in five minutes after this that there were four feet of water in the hold. Finding the leak increasing so fast that it was thought necessary to turn the hands to the pumps and to bail at the different hatchways, but she still continued to gain upon us so fast that in little more than an hour and a half after she struck there were eight feet and a half of water in the hold. 
About ten we perceived that the ship had beaten over the reef, and was in ten fathoms water. We therefore let go the small bower anchor, cleared away a cable, and let go the best bower anchor in fifteen and a half fathoms water underfoot, to steady the ship. Some of her guns were thrown overboard, and the water gained upon us only in a small degree, and we flattered ourselves that, by the assistance of a thrum topsail, which we were preparing to haul under the ship's bottom, we might be able to lessen the leak and to free her of water. But these flattering hopes did not continue long, for, as she settled in the water, the leak increased again, and in so great a degree that there was reason to apprehend she would sink before daylight. During the night two of the pumps were unfortunately for some time rendered useless. One of them, however, was repaired, and we continued bailing and pumping the remainder of the night and every effort that was thought of was made to keep afloat and preserve the ship. Daylight fortunately appeared, and gave us the opportunity of seeing our situation and the surrounding danger, and it was evident the ship had been carried to the northward by a tide or current. The officers, whom I had consulted on the subject of our situation, gave it as their opinion that nothing more could be done for the preservation of the ship. It then became necessary to endeavour to provide and to find means for the preservation of the people. Our four boats, which consisted of one launch, one eight-oared pinnace, and two six-oared yawls, with careful hands in them, were kept astern of the ship. A small quantity of bread, water, and other necessary articles were put into them. Two canoes, which we had on board, were lashed together and put into the water. Rafts were made, and all floating things upon deck were unlashed. About half-past six in the morning of the twenty-ninth, the hold was full, and the water was between decks, and it also washed in at the upper-deck ports, and there were strong indications that the ship was on the very point of sinking, and we began to leap overboard and take to the boats, and before everybody could get out of her, she actually sunk. The boats continued astern of the ship in the direction of the drift of the tide from her, and took up the people that had hold of rafts and other floating things that had been cast loose for the purpose of supporting them in the water. The double canoe, that was able to support a considerable number of men, broke adrift with only one man and was bulged upon a reef, and afforded us no assistance when she was so much wanted on this trying and melancholy occasion. Two of the boats were laden with men and sent to a small sandy island, or quay, about four miles from the wreck, and I remained near the ship for some time with the other two boats, and picked up all the people that could be seen, and then followed the two first boats to the quay and having landed the men and cleared the boats, they were immediately dispatched again to look about the wreck and the adjoining reef for any that might be missing, but they returned without having found a single person. On mustering the people that were saved, it appeared that eighty-nine of the ship's company and ten of the mutineers that had been prisoners on board answered to their names, but thirty-one of the ship's company and four mutineers were lost with the ship. It is remarkable enough that so little notice is taken of the mutineers in this narrative of the captain, and as the following statement is supposed to come from the late Lieutenant Corner, who was second lieutenant of the Pandora, it is entitled to be considered as authentic, and if so, Captain Edwards must have deserved the character ascribed to him of being altogether destitute of the common feelings of humanity. Three of the bounty's people, Coleman, Norman, and Mackintosh, were now led out of irons and set to work at the pumps. The others afforded their assistance and begged to be allowed a chance of saving their lives. Instead of which, two additional sentinels were placed over them, with orders to shoot any who should attempt to get rid of their fetters. Seeing no prospect of escape, they betook themselves to prayer and prepared to meet their fate, 
every one expecting that the ship would soon go to pieces, her rudder and part of the stern post being already beat away. When the ship was actually sinking, and every effort making for the preservation of the crew, it is asserted that no notice was taken of the prisoners, as is falsely stated by the author of Pandora's Voyage, although Captain Edwards was entreated by Mr. Haywood to have mercy upon them, when he passed over their prison, to make his own escape, the ship then lying on her broadside, with the larboard bow completely under water. Fortunately, the master at arms, either by accident or design, when slipping from the roof of Pandora's box into the sea, let the keys of the irons fall through the scuttle or entrance, which he had just before opened, and thus enabled them to commence their own liberation in which they were generously assisted, at the imminent risk of his own life, by William Moulter, a boatswain's mate, who clung to the combings and pulled the long bars through the shackles, saying he would set them free or go to the bottom with them. Scarcely was this effected when the ship went down, leaving nothing visible but the topmast cross-trees. The master-at-arms and all the sentinels sunk to rise no more. The cries of them and the other drowning men were awful in the extreme, and more than half an hour had elapsed before the survivors could be taken up by the boats. Among the former were Mr. Stewart, John Sumner, Richard Skinner, and Henry Hilbrandt, the whole of whom perished with their hands still in manacles. On this melancholy occasion Mr. Haywood was the last person but three who escaped from the prison, into which the water had already found its way through the bulkhead scuttles. Jumping overboard, he seized a plank and was swimming towards a small sandy quay, about three miles distant, when a boat picked him up, and conveyed him thither in a state of nudity. It is worthy of remark that James Morrison endeavoured to follow his young companion's example, and, although handcuffed, managed to keep afloat until a boat came to his assistance. This account would appear almost incredible. It is true men are sometimes found to act the part of inhuman monsters, but then they are generally actuated by some motive or extraordinary excitement. Here, however, there was neither. But on the contrary, the condition of the poor prisoners appealed more forcibly to the mercy and humanity of their jailer. The surgeon of the ship states, in his account of her loss, that as soon as the spars, booms, hen-coops, and other buoyant articles were cut loose, the prisoners were ordered to be let out of the irons. One would imagine, indeed, that the officers on this dreadful emergency would not be witness to such inhumanity, without remonstrating effectually against keeping these unfortunate men confined a moment beyond the period when it became evident that the ship must sink. It will be seen, however, presently, from Mr. Haywood's own statement, that they were so kept, and that the brutal and unfeeling conduct which has been imputed to Captain Edwards is but too true. End of chapter 5, part 1. Recording by Haley Flagg of Texas.